This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show. And today I'm thrilled to welcome Andrew, Andrew Port. Andrew is professor of history at Wayne State University. He's the author or editor of two previous books on German history. And he was also the editor-in-chief of Central European History, the flagship English-language journal of the field. And today we're going to talk about his new book, Never Again, Germans and Genocide After the Holocaust, which came out just yesterday. So, Andrew, congratulations and thanks for joining us and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's really a pleasure to be here. So, as you know, we always start out the same way. So um, I'd ask you to start by just saying a little bit about yourself um, and how you became interested in studying history and, and maybe particular German history. Well, German history, uh, if you had told me, say, 35 years ago that I would become a historian of Germany, I would never have believed you. But um, I, I grew up um, in a very secular, non-observant Jewish home in Brooklyn, in New York. So in a sense, German history, more specifically, the Holocaust was always um, was always a theme um, I remember the, the first time I heard of the Nazis, I was sitting with my grandmother in a movie theater, we were watching Cabaret, and there's a scene where a dog is killed and put on somebody's doorstep. And um, and I whispered, I was about five at the time, and I whispered to her, who did that? And she whispered back, the Nazis. So that was my my first <laughs> exposure to, to the Nazis. Fast forward about 15 years, I spent a year studying in Paris um, at my junior year abroad during college, and I met a number of Germans that year, and I was so impressed by them for a variety of reasons, but especially about how they talked about their country's past in a way that I hadn't really experienced in my own country, a real a real sense of honesty and and, and reckoning. And, and then in the middle of the year, over New Year's, I went to uh, Berlin, met people there, uh, became so enamored of, of, of Berlin and the country that I went back to Paris and started learning German and you know the rest is uh the rest is the rest is history um <laughs> in, a, in a sense um the topic that I wrote about in in the book never again Germans that um 
never again began in a sense almost, well, now more than 30 years ago. I was in Germany in the summer of 1992. Um, I think I was doing, might've been doing a dissertation research at that point, but I was there for that summer. And that was when the first stories broke about the concentration camps, the so-called concentration camps that the Serbs had set up. And I just, I couldn't believe these stories. You know, supposedly there were concentration camps in Europe in 1992. Um, so that and being there and looking at how Germans were responding to those reports, that in a sense was the initial interest. Um, but I didn't write the book until, you know, 30 years later. I had other things <laughs> to do, like my dissertation and, and things like that. But um, but that was the initial spark. And, and, the, and then there were there there were others, um, uh, books that I let, later read, Paul Berman's Power and the Idealists, uh, Samantha Power is a Problem from Hell. I also um, teach a course every year on world history since 1945. And that was the first time I had a chance to deal with the history of other countries. Yeah. And that was really an important impetus for this book. I wanted to see connections between Germany and the rest of the world, which in a sense is also kind of trendy now because everyone is doing or trying to do transnational history. Um, but that wasn't my intent. I was just curious to see, you know, how did, how did Germans respond to these, to these other genocides? in uh, places that I knew very little about. Yeah, that's uh, that experience of Bosnia watching or witnessing maybe Bosnia and Rwanda seems a really common experience. I know that I was in Vienna doing uh, my dissertation research in 1994 when Austrians, I want to say discovered, but that's not quite right. First, I think seriously engaged in their role in uh, World War II. And alongside of that, um, as I read read uh, articles in Profil and other journals, uh, the Austrians were experiencing the same wave of um, refugees, as you talk about in the book, um, and trying to figure out what their role in is that as people who kind of think of themselves as Germans and kind of don't, which is an interesting, interesting approach. You, I know... I want to take a brief pause, not a pause, but um, brief detour, because uh, I know we have graduate students uh, who listen to these podcasts, and I know that um, that the role of editor in a in a professional journal like Central European History is really important in terms of shaping a discipline and thinking about how a discipline um, explores new themes and encourages authors to to approach the past. And so can you say something uh, first for graduate students? Uh, well, let's go back the other way. For for people who did not who are not in graduate school, can you say a little bit about what a professional journal is in the field and what what we try why we have them and 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 to the and the way in which people who are not professionally trained in history may or may not decide to um, engage with them? Well, I, 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 okay, here's my cynical response. I guess the reason we have them is that so that academics can publish peer-reviewed articles and get tenure at some point. That's probably <laughs> the main reason we have that. No, I'm kidding. Um, they, they tend to be, it depends, of course, on the journal, but the one that I edited, Central European History, focused on the history of German-speaking Central Europe. Uh, under the new editor, 
um, it's expanded a bit to cover all of the Habsburg lands. And given all of the um, nasty emails I would get from people who uh, wrote, say, about Czechoslovakia, and I said, uh -huh. I'm sorry, we can't publish that. I, I think they're going to be very happy about this 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 expansion. But at any rate, we we uh, Central European History publishes on, as I said, articles that focus on um, well, yeah, on Central Europe, primarily. Germany. Um, we have a rigorous peer review process. Right? We articles come in, we send out to two readers, and then you know make a decision whether or not to to um, to, to publish them. Um, you you mentioned before about the ability of a journal to shape the field. It's true and it's not true. You know, as editor, there's only so much you can do in terms of submissions, right? You. You know, we go. I would go to the annual meetings of, say, the German Studies Association or the American um, Historical uh, Society, um, and, and go to lots of panels, and then go up to people afterwards and, and encourage them to to submit. But again, there's only so much you can do. You can set up special issues. You can, you know, assign articles on, on specific topics. But in a sense, we're very much beholden to uh you know what 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 people what people submit um if i could since we have graduate students listening i, I would just give a, a few tips that i've gathered over the years that might be might be helpful to them um and and the first one is is the best piece of advice that i ever got when i was in graduate school it was my first year i wrote a seminar paper for akira irie who's a wonderful diplomatic historian and uh, I did all of this work, and I read hundreds of articles and books, and and uh, he gives me back the paper, and he says, very good, very good, but if you want to publish this, you probably should try to develop an argument. And again, single best piece of, wow, I'd never thought of that, actually, analysis and an argument. I have found that many of the submissions I got didn't really have an argument. I don't think the 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 authors necessarily knew at that point what they were trying to say. So coming up with some sort of argument, this is what I'm trying to do here, I think is really um, essential for, for um, not just graduate students, but also you know younger faculty and to be honest, some older faculty <laughs> as well. Um, what is it like being an editor? This is in some sense, for some academics, a side gig, but also uh, uh, for publishing companies, a way that you might move from whether a, a bachelor's degree or or, or uh, more advanced degrees into a, a career. So what was it like? What skills are necessary to be an editor? And what was that experience like for you? Um. <clears throat> you know, to quote Dickens, it was the best of times. It was the, it was the worst of times. <laughs> Um, I, I don't regret having done it, mm -hmm. but it was, it was a very challenging five years. We mm -hmm. put out four issues a year. So there was a constant turnover. Um, I am for better or worse, I'm trying to get better at this, but for better or worse, I'm a real stickler for clarity and language, mm -hmm. um, and clarity of argument. And, um, I would have a lot of back and forth with authors trying to get them to not just develop their arguments, but to do it in as clear a way as possible. And very often there's um, there's resistance to that. You know, there, there seems to be a premium in a lot of um, fields on writing in a, um, 
in in a uh, kind of uh, well, you know, jargony, uh, highfalutin sort of way that that people think is the way you're supposed to write. I recently saw a wonderful documentary about Kurt Vonnegut, and one of the interviewers said um, that any good writer knows that it's not easy to write easy. And I, I think that's um, I think that's very true. Um, I, I don't know if I've written a good book here or a clear book, but I do know I took 15 years to write it in large part because of editing uh, the Central European history that, that that occupied a lot of my a lot of my time. But um, but I, I just I think that's important and it would be so important to me to to have a broader audience for academic books. I was really very happy that some of not the U.S. papers, of course, because the interest in German history you know, it was much more limited, but I was happy that the German uh, press picked up some of our stories, reported about them, um, and and that that reached a larger audience, and that um, you know that that was that was very gratifying. Let's talk about the book, um, and let's preface it with the recognition that this is a channel of on new books of genocide studies where many listeners, some listeners maybe well acquainted with German history, but many listeners are acquainted with Holocaust history, but not German history. So maybe we can start a little bit by just asking you to say something about this kind of what I think is a common, still a common idea that Germans didn't think about the Holocaust very much in the late 40s and 50s and early 60s. Is that is that still the assumption that German historians make, or um, I think it's 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 more nuanced than that right now. Yes, for a long time that was certainly the the um, the impression. Um, and in the introduction to the book, I give a brief overview of German memory work since 1945. Um, you know, I, I would say this as one could imagine. In the uh, early post-war years, late 40s, early 50s, uh, your ordinary Germans had more on their minds than trying to deal with the past. And that's not an excuse. It's just, a, I think, just a, a practical consideration, right? They were trying to rebuild their country, recover. Um, at the same time, it, it is true that the Holocaust uh, was, was not a major topic like it is today. But, you know, as I've argued in some pieces that I've written, there was more, the Germans call this dealing with the past, they call it, it's one of these nice long German words, Vergangenheitsbewältigung. And I have argued that there was more German Vergangenheitsbewältigung, dealing with the past in those early years uh, than maybe at any time since. And I know that'll raise a few eyebrows. What I mean by that is the way the constitution was set up and all of the reforms that were introduced in East and West Germany were all, in a sense, an attempt to deal with the horribleness of the previous two decades, of the 30s and 40s. Now, more specifically to, to Holocaust memory work, it's true, not a lot of it, not a lot of it in the late 40s, early 50s uh, in East or West Germany. This also complicates the answer a bit because you have to look at East and West Germany when responding you know, to a question like this. Um, but it... Um, it starts to pick up interest in 
the crimes of the National Socialists, it starts to pick up in the late 50s for a variety of reasons. There are a series in the winter of 1959, there are a series of anti-Semitic acts, um, vandalism in, in Germany. You have your first um, uh, trial of, of putting, um, I believe, uh, SS men on trial in Ulm. I'm probably getting the details there wrong, but um, the Eichmann trial in Israel, the Frankfurt-Auschwitz trials of the mid-60s, uh, the conversation begins then. There's a greater awareness than there had been. Of course, it really takes off in the late 60s with the student movement. And again, I'm talking about West Germany. Um, there is a misconception that, you know, 68 uh, was about the Holocaust, um, it wasn't. That really wasn't a major theme. It was focusing on the dangers of the past repeating itself, but even more so the failure, supposed failure of the previous generation to have dealt uh, with that past. The specific interest in the Holocaust begins a decade later in the late 70s. Um, the traditional uh, turning point is considered to be the airing of the Holocaust miniseries, the American miniseries with Meryl Streep, uh, which I remember watching as a as, as a child, came out just two years after Roots, which was amazing. Um, and uh, interestingly, and it was a media spectacle when it was shown uh, on German television in January 1979. And um, what's so fascinating is that the same month that that miniseries was shown in Germany, the Khmer Rouge were ousted from power in Cambodia. And as I talk about in the book, and we can, you know, I could talk more about this in a bit, um, that has a real effect on how Germans talk about what happened in Cambodia. So you start having books with the title, for example, Holocaust in Cambodia, right? Um, so. Yeah, so. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. To, I didn't mention East Germany. I just want to. East Germany always gets the short ends of the stick. So I just want to say a few words about about East Germany. Um, it, 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 again, it would be wrong to say that the East Germans did not deal with their past. They certainly did. One could argue that it was much more politicized there in the way in which they did it. The Holocaust, if it wasn't much of a topic in West Germany through the 60s, uh, it was even less of a topic in East Germany. It's not to say that there was no discussion of it. One of the very first films made about the genocide of the German of, of European Jewry uh, was a film made, I believe, in 46 or 47 in Germany, uh, East Germany. So, um, you know, one has to be careful, but, uh, you know, about broad generalizations. But I, I really do think it's true that the Jews were seen as one of many victims. And if I wanted to be unkind, I would say they were seen as second class victims in the sense that the real quote unquote real victims were communists, right? And uh, those Jews who did suffer, suffered in large part, um, either because they were communists or it was a way to distract the masses, suppose, you know, quote, quoting the ideologues here, distract them somehow uh, from um, <clears throat> other uh, maybe more pressing concerns. Yeah, I'm intrigued by the fact that this debate seems to happen, starts happening, as you say, in the late 70s, and your book mostly starts with Cambodia. Um, was there a German 
response to or interest in in either of, of the Germanys to previous post-1945 um, incidences of something like genocide, so of Indonesia or Bangladesh. Um, the one that pops up every now and then in your book is Biafra. Um, yeah. so, so is there any discussion of these? Um, yes. Uh, uh -huh. There is. Uh, there, there's uh, been some very good work done on it. Um, uh, Lasse Hatton um, is is a uh, has written a book about not just German responses to Biafra, but uh, Western responses to Biafra. Um, Dirk Moses, whom you've had on your show before, um, I had organized a, a seminar at the German Studies Association a few years ago. He presented a, a, an interesting paper on West German responses to uh, Bangladesh and, and, and what happened um, what happened there. Um, so yes, there was some interest. Um, it's not; those are not genocides. Well, first of all, the Biafra one, it's quite, you know, there's a debate. I, I don't want to get, get into the how many angels fit on the pin, you know, out of the pin, but, but there are these debates about what was genocide and what wasn't. Um, but no, there, there was certainly interest, um, not to the extent that there was about the genocides in Cambodia, Bosnia, and uh, and Rwanda. And uh, I, I think that's for for, you know, for various reasons. I think in terms of the evolution of the media, satellite television, things like that, brought these later genocides, you know, into uh, into into people's homes that you know hadn't been the case um, um, earlier. It's always been my one fear that I would read a review of this book criticizing me for not having, you know, reviewed or looked at those those earlier genocides, and and my response to that, of course, is well, you know, one has to make choices. I I I decided to focus uh, again Cambodia Bosnia Rwanda because they received so much attention right there are others also at that time Guatemala for example East Timor you know on and on and on um, but these were the ones that um, really attracted the most attention which means that the source material is most abundant most uh, most 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 uh, interesting um Cambodia because of what I mentioned before, the fall of the Khmer Rouge coinciding with the showing of uh, the, the Holocaust miniseries, um, which is the point really where the Holocaust becomes the Holocaust in a sense in, in West Germany. Um, that to me seemed like a logical starting point for the book. How, might, or how did Germans learn about the violence in Cambodia? Um, and how was it portrayed? Well, <laughs> I, I'll start off with a, a little anecdote. I gave a talk in Berlin a few years ago, and there were two very well-known um, historians there, very yeah, wonderful historians, I won't mention names, but two very wonderful German historians known for their uh, leftist sympathies. And I gave uh, this talk, and both of them got up kind of in a huff and said, you know, nobody knew about Cambodia when it was happening. We just, we had no idea. Um, the more research I did, the more I realized that that was a, a fairly typical response, especially on the left. Revelations of what these ostensibly communist Khmer Rouge were doing 
uh, you know, people who had been supported by the left in West Germany and elsewhere before then, you know, it, it, it wasn't something <laughs> that they gladly um, read or, or, or heard about. But okay, more specifically to your question, it's simply wrong what these two historians said, that nobody knew about what was going on in Cambodia. It was reported extensively in the West German media from the very beginning, from the very beginning. And talk of genocide first uh, appears on the one year anniversary uh, of, in, in April 1976, so one year after the Khmer Rouge uh, uh, takeover. Um, <clears throat> plenty of reports, officials, West German officials had a very good sense of what was going on there, even though the Khmer Rouge had really you know, closed itself off to the to, to, to the outside world, a uh, very good sense of what was going on. East Germany was different. Uh, as you can imagine, for the East Germans, it was not, um, it wouldn't have made for good headlines to talk about a communist regime slaughtering hundreds of thousands or more uh, people. The East Germans finally pick up on it in uh, the late winter of 1978. That's when the Vietnamese and the Khmer Rouge fall out. Uh, a war begins between the two of them for because of geopolitical constellations at the time, who the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc backed in Southeast Asia, who the Chinese backed. Um, all of a sudden, it became an issue in um, in East Germany as as, uh, as as well. But East German officials also, I know this from work that I did in the archives, uh, East German officials also had a very, very good sense of what was going on there. They were getting reports from uh, diplomats uh, from other uh, socialist countries. Um, so so you know, all along there was I, I clearly not to the extent that we would know after 1979, but but they had a pretty good sense beforehand. Yeah, I was really intrigued by this debate that shows up in the book about this question about how you should assess the violence committed by the government of Cambodia compared to the violation of sovereignty that's implicit in the Vietnamese invasion that topples uh, the Khmer Rouge from power. And what are the stakes of that? Why are, why are people arguing about that? And, and, why is that important? Yeah, um, <laughs> that that was a very interesting part of my research, I thought, um, and a very difficult one as well. The, the brief background is that um, when the Khmer Rouge were ousted from power in January 1979, there was a struggle between them, other opposition groups, and the regime that the Vietnamese had brought in about who would represent Cambodia now at the United Nations. And to my great surprise, if I'd known more about Cambodia before then, it wouldn't have been a surprise, but to my great surprise, it turned out that the United States um, and China and many countries in Western Europe, including West Germany, voted in favor of the Khmer Rouge representing Cambodia at the UN. And uh, they used procedural arguments. They had represented Cambodia before. It would be, you know, an error. It would set a precedent, you know, not to allow them to continue. Um, but the other argument you alluded to this was that the Vietnamese had invaded Cambodia. 
right? That it was, um, that, that Cambodia's sovereignty had been, um, you know, had been violated. Uh, and for that reason, at least this was the official reason uh, given by the government and, and behind the scenes as well in, 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 in diplomatic discussions that they could not, that it would set a bad precedent to represent, to, to, to recognize um, a regime set up by a country that had invaded another country. Now, at the same time that Viet or a few months after Vietnam had uh, invaded Cambodia and put an end to the genocide, um, there had been a, um, a similar instance in um, in, in Africa. Uh, and I'm going to get this wrong, but I believe it was Tanzania that invaded Uganda in um, the spring of 79. And the West Germans and others had no problem, <laughs> uh, you know, supporting um, Tanzania's action uh, there. So the Cold War obviously played a very important role in all of this. The East Germans uh, backed the new regime that the Vietnamese had had uh, had, had installed, and um, and you know they they fought it out throughout the eighties. You know who had the right to to represent uh, Cambodia. So one of the broad themes of your book is this German wrestling of about what, if any, role they should play, must play, must not play in um, in helping people who are victims of mass violence or perhaps even intervening in some way to forestall or prevent or end mass violence. So so what does that argument look like in Cambodia? Is, is there any serious argument about um, intervening as a state rather in, in the 70s? Uh, or is that limited to individuals or organizations that raise money for or um, go to Cambodia. Uh, and then how does that debate change by the time you get to the early 90s and the peace agreement that uh, is, is brokered at that time? Right. Um, I, I, one of the influences um, for my book one of, or impetuses was Samantha Power's study mm -hmm. um, the problem from hell, and that's a really impassioned plaidoyer for the United States to have gotten involved and done something to stop or prevent other genocides. Um, you know, as I write in the book, her 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 book, Samantha Power's book, is a, is a you know a jacuzzi of sorts, you know, about what the United States should have done. I assiduously avoid that take in my book especially when it comes to Cambodia. There was no way that a country like West Germany would have, could have, should have, we could debate about, uh, gotten involved there. No one would have considered, you know, West Germany sending off troops to, to Cambodia. They're, what they could do is very limited since they didn't have diplomatic relations or economic trade. The, the Khmer Rouge had pretty much... Um, uh, pursued an autarkic uh, policy. They only had relations with North Korea and, and, and China. So there's very little that the West Germans could have done. The same was true for the East Germans. The East Germans, there was very little contact between the uh, between Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, and and um, <clears throat> and East Berlin. Um, so in terms of either country doing something pragmatic or practical to stop the uh, genocide in Cambodia, that was really a non-starter. 
The only one, interestingly enough, and I know this from Samantha Power's fine book, the only one at the time who was calling for military interference or intervention, rather, uh, was, of all people, Senator George McGovern in this country, right, who, yeah, the irony there is is, is palpable. Uh, there was nobody like that in uh, East or, or West Germany. Things changed by the 90s, right? You have German... Uh, unification. Germany is now a sovereign country. Um, Bosnia is, you know, a, an hour flight from Munich, a drive, a, a day's drive from from uh, from Berlin. There are many more connections, also historical ones, between Germany and the Balkans. Um, it is possible for some for for the Germans to do something when it is in their backyard. Rwanda is a different story. Rwanda is so far away. Um, even though Rwanda had been part of a German colony uh, until the end of World War I, there's really no sense of any historical connection uh, there. Rwanda is a theme in the spring and summer of 1994, but in terms of the Germans actually doing something, sending troops, uh, not a topic at all. Yet Germans do end up participating um, in a UN presence in Cambodia in the early '90s. So, what what was the impetus for that, and what 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 limitations uh, were there on German participation in that mission? Right. So, uh, the Germans do send um, um, military medics and border guards to Cambodia in October 1991. A peace treaty is finally signed. There had been a civil war after the ouster of the Khmer Rouge, lasted about a decade. In 91, the parties come together in Paris, sign a peace treaty, and the UN uh, agrees to send a peacekeeping force to oversee the transition, to oversee the, um, uh, the elections, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yes. Germans do send these medics. Um, it is the first major uh, deployment of the Bundeswehr uh, on a uh, on a UN mission. Supposedly, it was a non-combat mission. That's true. Sometimes, uh, German soldiers who were sent there got into rather ticklish situations where they would be shot at. One German uh, fellow was, in fact, <clears throat> uh, murdered in Phnom Penh just two weeks before he was supposed to go back. Um, to uh, to Germany. So the interesting question is uh, whether or not, I think the interesting question is whether or not Germans participated in Cambodia because of their own past. And as, as I, you know, write in the book, I, I think it would be, it, it's it's too, too much of a platitude. It's too facile to say that they did, that they send troops there. I mean, there's something quite poetic about it, right? That the, that the first major deployment of the Bundeswehr after unification is to a country, Cambodia, that had earlier experienced genocide. I don't think that that was a motivation. But I will tell you a little story from the archive. Germany has a 30-year rule, right? You're not allowed to look at, at documents that are younger than 30 years. They made a mistake in one of the archives and gave me the files uh, from the early 90s also about the German mission there. Huh. Um, but before I got to them, they were sitting on my desk there. And, and uh, before I got to them, the fellow at the front desk came over to me and uh, <clears throat> gave me a little lecture about how 
uh, you knew when you came here that you were not allowed to. I said, well, you know, they they gave them to me. It's not my fault. And anyway, so I didn't get a chance to look at them. But even if I had, I, I really don't believe that Germany's genocidal past is the reason why um, those those uh, those those troops were, were were sent. So you talked about the the the, the simple fact that Bosnia is closer, or Yugoslavia, and then Serbia and Bosnia and Croatia and so on are closer to Germany, both geographically and and potentially culturally. Um, although I will, I'm always reminded of the. Uh, I started out life as a Habsburg specialist and reminded of the memoir by the Habsburg um, ambassador to, I think it was uh, maybe Montenegro, who's titled his uh, memoirs, uh, My Three Years in the East. Mm -hmm. So I also want to recognize that Bosnia is seen, or that region is seen as European and not European in some interesting ways. And so so how does how did the people reporting on the violence in the Balkans, how do they present that violence and and the people who are engaging in the violence? Um, I think there's a real there's a real ambivalence there. On the one hand, you have the media playing on tropes and and cliches about you know the wild serbs right um there's a sense that this area is you know somehow different it's not western europe of course um what i found most interesting was the reaction to the muslims there you know the, the germans have rightfully gotten a lot of criticism for um continuing racism and and, and xenophobia um not least since since 1990, what struck me was how welcoming they were to Muslim refugees. You know, and let's not forget the Germans in the uh, early and mid 90s took in more than double all of the refugees from the region that all of the other European countries um, took in. One can argue whether that was true per capita, et cetera, et cetera, but raw numbers, they took in between 350 and 400,000. And what really struck me was how, uh, how they viewed the Muslims who came. And they were almost shocked that they were, you know, quote unquote, Europeans just like us. They they smoke, they wear sweatshirts, they have blonde hair and blue eyes. They say that necessarily but they looked they thought they looked um european uh, and they were they they considered them to be westernized um muslims right they weren't dangerous like the quote-unquote like the ones in iran and, and and other places as the war continued towards the end beginning in late 1993 1994 uh and the muslims start to enjoy greater uh, military success there are increasing reports of atrocities by the Muslims uh, against the Serbs. There is uh, There are reports that uh, Islamic fundamentalism is starting to take root um, in uh, certain segments of Bosnian society. So there are concerns there, but all in all, uh, and again, to my great surprise, and especially to those who today will argue that Germans are um, have prejudice against Muslims, which of course many do, of course many do. Uh, they they really welcomed 
these Muslims with open arms. And you could say, of course, that the fact that they were westernized Muslims, that that in itself is a subtle form of discrimination, or maybe not so subtle form of discrimination. Um, but that I found, um, I found really, uh, really fascinating, that, that response. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Question then that many German policymakers and, and, and just citizens faced is this question of what to do. So can you walk us through these debates about what, what options German policymakers and citizens talk about and how they frame these options and how they eventually, I, I would say slowly, but I'm not actually sure that's the right word, given how quickly events on the ground move, um, move to decide to, to participate even in, in, in an attempt to keep a peace or make a peace, even in somewhat limited ways. You're talking about Bosnia now? Yeah, please. Um, there are many debates. There are um, There's a debate about whether or not there should be military intervention at all from outside. There is a debate about whether, if, if, in, in that event, whether or not Germans should participate. And of course, that's hotly debated given Germany's uh, own history in the region, what it had done there. Uh, when it had occupied the Balkans uh, during World War II. Um, there is a debate about whether or not arms should be given to the Muslims, right? Similar debates to today about Ukraine, right? Is it is, uh, you know, and, and I can think of no place where the debates have been pursued as hotly as they have been in Germany now about whether or not heavy armaments should be sent there. Of course, we have those debates here as well, thanks to Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and some <laughs> other uh, conservatives who are more critical of that. Um, but those those are some of the major um, some of the major debates. And, and really, what really struck me when reading this, and especially when I you know compare it to um, you know some of our own news coverage or debates here in the U.S. Uh, in, 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 in Congress or, you know, discussions on CNN or Fox or MSNBC or what have you, um, was the elevated level of discussion there um, in terms of content, also in terms of emotion, also in terms of the burden of, of Germany's past. Um, uh, were there arguments? Were there nasty art? Yes, there certainly were. But I walked away from reading these debates and you know, listening to news reports about them from the period, reading parliamentary debates, editorials and, and articles in newspapers, um, thinking that it was um, really being impressed again by, by how, how sincerely the people presented their positions that that people for the most part seem to have very noble motives um, and were very often just uncertain about what the best response would be 
uh, to this, and there were no easy answers. And and you know, call me a call me a fence sitter if you will, but I just remember reading through these debates and reading one side and thinking that's a great argument, and then reading just the opposite argument and thinking that makes a lot of sense too. You know, I, I remember reading years ago, Margaret Thatcher was once asked, you know, don't you see the point that your opponents are making and she said well of course i do but i'm a politician and i have to make a decision and you know when i make it i you know, have to. so you know as a historian reading these debates i don't have that uh, i i i do have the luxury of stepping back and saying i see the the merit on um on on um on both sides um and again just to give you an example you know how germans would again the the, the weight of the past was always present what, what I found really fascinating was how people on opposite sides of the issue, whether or not Germany should get involved there militarily, whether or not Germany should send armaments, um, they both sides use German history to their own advantage in different ways. Those who said, well, because of German Germany's history, right, the world wars, the Holocaust, what it did in the Balkans in the 1940s, we have no, the Germans said, we have no right, we should not be there. And that was the line of people like Helmut Kohl, the Chancellor of Germany, uh, well into 1994-1995. Those who argued for some sort of German participation said that because of our history, we have a duty, we have an obligation not to stand by and, and watch this, this slaughter take place. And again, I found arguments on, on you know, both sides very convincing, just like I do today when it comes to Ukraine. Those same very similar arguments are, are, um, are playing out. Yeah, you use, um, and I'm going to take advantage of the fact that it's hard to think on your feet, but you used the words, used arguments about the German past to their advantage. And I want to ask you to think a little bit about or say more about that. Is it to what extent are they employing arguments drawn from the using German past as a as a rhetorical strategy? Or to what extent are their arguments about the present really, truly informed or shaped by their perceptions of the past? And I'm sure it's in the middle somewhere, but yeah, I, I, like like most of these issues, of course, it's somewhere in the middle. I, I agree with that. I by the 1990s, I think there's a general consensus, and not just in Germany, that the Holocaust, the, the so-called final solution, uh, was the nadir of human uh, society, you know, the, the, the greatest um, atrocity that had ever taken place. So there are allusions to that on both sides of these issues, right, pointing to Germany's past. Uh, I think my impression is that they do that because it is the most effective way of mobilizing other people. If you can draw the analogy to Auschwitz, Buchenwald, what have you, um, you're going to get a reaction. You're going to get a reaction. Sometimes the reaction is a negative one. You're trivializing the Holocaust. You shouldn't be, um, <clears throat> you shouldn't, use the example of, of 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 Auschwitz because it's it's so different 
from what's going on there. And since you're downplaying its 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 gravity, it's, it's but but um but in general, I I I would say that I I did not <laughs> I never had the impression, or I seldom had the impression that Germans were making those analogies as a way to somehow uh, diminish the, the their own crimes, to somehow relativize their own crimes. And that's always the concern, right? If, if when Germans said, well, what about, you know, what about Cambodia? What about Baffer? What um, Again, I found the comparisons, yes, on the one hand, rhetorical, instrumental, but not to somehow diminish the burden that Germans feel about their own history. So, so I want to get to some broader umbrella questions that come out of this. But before that, for, for people who are not familiar with this history, can you just briefly summarize what, what decisions were made? Um, how did Germany um, support uh, or did and if so, how did Germany support NATO and UN uh, missions in the Balkans? How did this all end up? Right. Well, you know, from the very beginning, 91, 92, uh, the Germans were on board with various forms of economic sanctions, embargoes that were placed on Serbia, uh, limiting, for example, the delivery of, of weapons to the region. Um, that was never a major debate where it did again become hotly contested was whether or not Germans would send uh, actual troops, um, non-combat troops. Combat troops were never an issue. They became an issue uh, four years later in Kosovo, which was the first time that Germany, the first time since 1945 that, that the Bundeswehr, the German army was involved in actual combat missions, uh, ironically under a green foreign minister um, Joschka Fischer, you know, the Green Party, of course, being known supposedly for its its pacifism. One can argue about that. And at the time, Fischer said, well, you know, we haven't always been as as pacifist um, as, as we've claimed to be, uh, as he should have known from personal experience, given the stories that that arose about him beating up policemen in the early 1970s in Frankfurt and and, um, and elsewhere. Um, but in the end, the I think that most people would believe that Srebrenica, the massacre at Srebrenica in mid-July 1995, was the turning point. That's actually not true. Um, it happens uh, about a month earlier. In 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 June of 1995, the West Germans are sorry, the Germans are asked if they would be willing to uh, participate in some sort of rapid reaction force that would extricate UN personnel who were in danger from the area. The Bundestag has a major debate and they agree. They agree that they will um, send logistical support. Joschka Fischer, whom I mentioned before, June 30th, 1995, holds a speech uh, in the Bundestag where he says that uh, he is uh, vehemently against that. Some Greens already supported it. He was against it. Srebrenica happens two weeks later. Uh, so in mid-July, and um, and Fisher and others uh, completely changed their views. Fisher all of a sudden uh, comes out uh, calling for a military guarantee for so-called Bosnian safe zones that mm -hmm. the UN had set up to protect 
um, Muslims who were in, in enclaves, primarily in eastern uh, Bosnia. Fisher is a really interesting story, uh, his, his evolution during this period. And I talk, I start the book, uh, I have a prologue where I talk about uh, Fisher's evolution uh, at this time. Uh, in late July, he publishes a, um, a, an open letter in the leftist German press in which he calls for these military guarantees. There is a huge backlash uh, against that by other leading members of the Green Party, backlash at the grassroots. This is a you know, complete abandonment of principles we've you know, stuck by for the last two, two decades. Um, more details come out about Srebrenica. Uh, the word genocide starts to uh, fall to be used. And uh, all of a sudden, Fisher in September 1995 calls for the adoption of a genocide clause. And I think this will be especially interesting to the listeners of this podcast. He calls for, that, for a genocide clause in which the UN, the international community, would actually send uh in the military, uh, what we now call humanitarian interventions, in uh, cases of genocide. Um, and as you can imagine, there's even more of an uproar uh, on the part of the Greens in response to um, to, to that uh, suggestion. Yeah, and I want to say there's lots of reasons to like this book, which is excellent. And, and I've kind of steered us away from the details of German politics and history. But if you are interested in German history, this is a really interesting discussion of, of Fisher and Patrick Kelly and the way in which German political parties struggled with this and evolved over time. Uh, and I highly recommend that you go and, and get it and read it. Um, can, I just, can I jump yeah, in? Because yeah. you mentioned Patrick Kelly, and um, and I do spend a good part of the, the book talking about her and her response to Cambodia. Now, I said before that the troops, the, these these medics and border guards that were sent to Cambodia in 1991 to 1993, that Germany's past, I don't think, played a role there. But in 1989 and 1990, when it seemed pretty clear that the Khmer Rouge were making military advances and might come back to power, Petra Kelly all of a sudden adopted the uh, issue and came out very strongly in favor of she never really specified what, but came out very strongly in favor of the uh, Germans because of their past somehow getting involved and preventing the Khmer Rouge from coming back um, um, to, to, uh, to, to power. Um, I mean, I found that, and it wasn't, of course, surprising for Petra Kelly. She was a, a great enemy of the, the Chinese. Um, if we had more time, I could tell you one of my um, one of the more interesting anecdotes I, I heard when I was doing research for this book, I spoke with a former um, assistant of hers who told me, uh, yeah, I don't know if you know this, but she uh, died in 90, 1991, I believe, October 91. Her, her partner, uh, Gat Bastian, who was a former uh, German general who became a pacifist and was part of the anti-nuclear uh, movement of the early 80s, um, he killed her in her sleep. He shot her in her sleep and then um, murdered him, him himself. Huh. And there have been theories that 
um, and at least this is what this fellow I spoke uh, with, and it's a fascinating story. We don't have time for me to go into all the details because he really built up this, 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 and explained to me why he thinks that was the case. But he is convinced; he was convinced at the time that that it was the Chinese who murdered her, and um, and and not Gat Gat Bastian um, again because of her um, her her anti um, anti Chinese rhetoric. She was a, a a great critic of the Chinese. Um, the occupation of Tibet. That was really um, probably the, the issue that, that moved her most huh. uh, to politician. Well, sometime we will run into each other at a conference and I'll buy you a beer and you can tell me all those details. Oh, I'd love I that. I don't have time now, but... No, no, no. no. <laughs> um, one of the things I found really interesting about the book is the way you talk about language, about the way the language that reporters and, and politicians use resonate and sometimes replicate the language that is used during the war or used about the Holocaust. So can you tell listeners a little bit about that and, and, and about the way those linguistic choices may have shaped debates or reflected debates? Um, I, you know, as a historian of Germany and of someone who's focused, you know, a great deal on, on 20th century Germany, um, I was very attuned to language how how germans spoke about what was going on in these different countries and, and um if there are any um oh, what's his name? Ray, raymond carver fans out there I, the original title one working title of the book was what germans talk about when they talk about genocide and carver had what people talk about when they talk about love um, I know some friends still think I should have gone with that title, but but I was I was really in tune with I I read these you know I read thousands and thousands of newspaper articles and editorials, and I was always um, you know my ears would always prick up whenever those kinds of analogies or hints at allusions to the Nazi past um, uh, appeared. And it was, um, I don't want to say it was all the time, but it was really, really uh, frequent. It was quite clear what the rhetoric was, I, I think, intended um, to do. And again, this comes into these debates about whether or not that somehow relativized the Holocaust. I don't think so. I think it was the, I think comparisons to what had happened in Germany, they were, uh, <laughs> You know, in the toolbox of how Germans would talk about these things, um, the, the most obvious connection uh, to make. And again, one reason why I would argue that it wasn't necessarily a relativization was because the same kind of language was being used in other countries, like in the United States, like in France. Um, Samantha Power writes in her book that during the Bosnian War on the evening news, um, they would sometimes uh, show clips uh, of, of the concentration camps being liberated at the end of, of, of World War II. Um, so again, it has a different quality when Germans use such language, when they refer to concentration camps, when they refer to the use of gas, right? uh, when they refer to the Cambodians having a night of the long knives, which is a, an allusion to what um, you know Hitler did in June. 1934, when he cracked down on 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 um, on opposition within the uh, within the SA, um, but again, I, I 
because it, it might be one of the more controversial arguments I make in the book. I just I don't see it as a relativization of um, of Germany's of Germany's past. And I, I would I would give one example that I found especially illuminating when news of the mass rape, the systematic rape of Muslim women uh, became an issue uh, in the media, in, in German media, in the fall and winter of uh, 1992-1993. What struck me was how many conservative journalists uh, in uh, in Germany made the argument that what the Serbs were the, the historical power, parallel that was brought up was what the Soviets had done to German women after 1945, the mass rapes. But what I found interesting was that these conservative commentators said that what the uh, Serbs were doing to the Muslims was even worse than what the Soviets had done to German women, which um, for obvious reasons, that that's, that's interesting. Um, there was clearly an instrumental moment there, which was, you know, we're going to portray this in the most negative, awful way we can because these journalists wanted the German government to get more uh, more involved there. So another thing that um, comes out of the book uh, that I found interesting is the way in which you suggest that, um, that the debates go the other direction, that Germans use these debates about contemporary crises also, maybe indirectly, maybe not, as a way for Germans to engage in a debate about their own past. Can you say something about how this works and, yeah. and how important it is? I'm glad you bring that up. It, in a sense, it's the, the most speculative part um, about what I write. I, I talk about, uh, again, to bring back that long German word, Vergangenheitsbewältigung, I call it in a sense, Vergangenheitsbewältigung by proxy, mm. in a sense, dealing with their own past by the way in which they talk about, think about, and respond to um, these other uh, other genocides. Um, very often, in a sense, that's, that's I think, uh, reading between the lines, looking at the locution, looking at the examples that, that, that they're drawing. Um, I think the clearest example of it probably has to do with the Cambodian genocide. And, uh, and I'm thinking specifically of the effect that that had on a major debate in West Germany in the mid and uh, late 1980s um, about uh, Germany's past. I'm referring, of course, to the Historikerstreit or the historian's quarrel, uh, which uh, began when a conservative German historian slash philosopher, Ernst Nolte, published a piece in the uh, Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, the leading conservative uh, German newspaper, uh, in which he made a number of claims. One was that um, you, you had to look at the Holocaust in relation to a series of other mass atrocities and genocides that had taken place in the 20th century. Uh, he puts it back even further. He says, you know, this begins with the uh, French Revolution, something the, our contemporary historian uh, Simon Schama also argued, by the way, in his book, um, Citizens. His other main point, and, and it was even more controversial, was that the genocide of the Jews was a response by the Nazis uh, to the Bolsheviks and to Bolshevik um, atrocities. Okay, that was the debate that exploded. How does that relate to Cambodia? Well, I discovered that Nolte 
had written um, a, a lecture in 1980, right after the overthrow of the Khmer Rouge. And in this piece, he quotes extensively from the communist East German newspaper, Neues Deutschland. Who would have thunk that Hans Nolten read <laughs> Neues? Actually, it's not true. I, I, I interviewed him years later. He told me he read it in the FZ, a quote from Neues Deutschland from, from this conservative paper. But, but, um, <clears throat> but my suspicion is, is that those revelations about what were, was happening or had happened in Cambodia very much influenced how he and perhaps other conservatives viewed um, Germany's own uh, own crimes in the 30s and 1940s. I asked Nolte about that. He said, nope, nope, not true. It had no influence on me. But, you know, we historians sometimes uh, know better than the people we interview. Um, and and um, my suspicion is, is that subconsciously that, and, 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 I mean, I think the evidence is there also. This isn't speculation. When you have a long quote in a lecture describing the crimes of of the Khmer Rouge, and then use that to say this is typical of, uh, of, of the left going all the way back to the French Revolution, um, it seems to me quite clear that, that Cambodia and the revelations there had an effect on how Germans, at least some Germans, thought about their past. Again, this will not be popular among some of my colleagues. Um, there's a tendency to, to, to argue that Anson Olte was somehow relativizing the Holocaust. I don't think a close reading of what he has to say uh, supports that view. I, I certainly think he has some provocative and, and questionable claims. He refers, for example, to the, the flight of the boat people in the South China Sea as a holocaust on water, mm. which, besides being a strange mixed metaphor, is kind of offensive, I, I, I think, given. But, um, but, but he writes this in 1980, and again, he, he starts that lecture um, by talking about the holocaust miniseries and how much attention that had drawn. And then he goes to Cambodia later in the lecture and that there's a connection there to me is so obvious. Um, anyway, that, that would, I, I said before that speculative, what the effect was, I think in this case, it's pretty, pretty straightforward, even if Anson Olde doesn't agree with, uh, <laughs> agree with my interpretation. You get a lot of your times. So I mean, you end with a brief postscript or epilogue, I forget what it's called, about Ukraine. And so I just, if, if you could say just a little bit about where this discussion stands now with Ukraine and Myanmar in the past five or six years and debates about Uyghurs and what kind of attention, what kind of language, what kind of debates are German leaders having or citizens having about this question now? Um, I, I have to... I have to admit that I, I, at one point I'd spent about half of my adult life in Germany. And mm. as one German journalist said to me once, he said, you've gone half native. <laughs> I, have not, I have not been physically back in Germany since the summer of 2016, in large part because of COVID. I'm going in June again for the first time, and I'm very excited about that. Um, I try as often as I can to, on the internet, read through you know the, the, the major papers and and. Uh, my my wife, who is German, she and I very often watch uh, German news reports uh, evenings. Um, but I don't feel I don't feel confident enough to talk about 
how Germans are responding to say um, the Uyghurs. I, I did do for this epilogue, um, I, I looked into the debate about Ukraine um, and, and what I found interesting there is, again, you have the same debate, should Germany get involved, should it not, should it send weapons, should it not? What I found most interesting was how little attention is now being given to Germany's past as a um, as an argument for how it should uh, proceed in Ukraine. Um, it's not to say that the Third Reich is not an issue, it is, but when the Third Reich is invoked, it is invoked um, as a way in which to um, to criticize Putin and the Russians. So, yes, the Third Reich, the Holocaust, is still a theme, but it seems to be no longer about how this should affect our actions as Germans, but we use it to attack Russia and what it's doing in Ukraine. And in a sense, as, and as I write in the epilogue, um, you know, maybe Germany's becoming more of a, quote, normal nation, normal society as a result that not um, everything is necessarily about the Third Reich, which is, has you know, been the case since the 80s and the 90s. Um, but as I also write in the epilogue, I can't think, and I, I said this before in the interview, I, I can't think of any other country where the debates have been so intense about whether or not to send weapons to Ukraine as they are in Germany. And that... And that shows, to my mind, how much the, 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 the Germany's past continues to, to count um, in, 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 uh, in Germany today, consciously or subconsciously. Well, as I said before, it's a great book, and I encourage you and listeners to go, go get it and read it. I always end the interview, uh, Andrew, as you probably know, with a couple uh, questions, uh, one of which is, um, like you, I'm about head to head about to head to Europe. Um, I will have students with me, but that still gives me plenty of time to read at night. They're significantly younger than I am and probably have more energy than I do. Um, do you have something that um, to recommend to the audience, to me, to, to read, to watch uh, that comes out of your interest in this kind of subject? Well, you know, as, as I said before, the... Um... The two books that were really most instrumental in 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 um, inspiring this study were Paul Berman's Power and the Idealists, which was an essay that came out in, I believe, 2003-2004, um, in which he looks at the evolution of European radicals, including Joschka Fischer, whom we talked about before, how they went from being, quote-unquote, pacifists mm -hmm. to embracing in the late 1990s, mid 1990s, late 1990s, uh, military interventions, humanitarian interventions. I think it's a it, it's a wonderful book. Um, uh, Berman is a is a um, is really a gifted uh, gifted writer. Uh, he knew a lot of these people. Hung out, I believe, with with uh, Joschka Fischer and Daniel Cohn Bendit and these other German 68ers, uh, you know, years ago uh, in Frankfurt and Berlin. Um, the other one, of course, is Samantha, uh, Samantha Powers' um, book, a, a Problem from Hell. But would it be possible for me to plug something that Please. has nothing to do with the topic? Yeah. Well, when I was in graduate school, we used to play a game 
can you name a book that's been written in the last 10 years that is really earth shaking, that's going to change the field, that should change the field that you just loved? And to me, the book that that I really just adore um, is called Deep History and the Brain by Daniel Lord Smell, which is a, um, what Smell tries to do is, is apply the insights of neuroscience and biology to the practice of history. Huh. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, you know, people can disagree, of course, with his with his conclusions, but we've had so many quote unquote turns in history over the last decades, you know, the new cultural history, the linguistic turn, right? All of that. I I would really welcome a a, a scientific turn where um where historians um start to engage more with the insights of the natural sciences and apply those to our own study of history. And I, I, I've heard the objections, you know, one historian, a colleague of mine who, who also lives here in Ann Arbor, he said, um, well, you know, uh, how are they going to do that? How, how are, you know, how are they going to learn all, all of the scientific material? I said, well, look, you know, enough of us have been um, masquerading as sociologists <laughs> anthropologists <laughs> in the last few decades. So I think, you know, learning to be natural scientists uh, would, would not be, um, you know, all that difficult either. Again, Daniel Lord, it's not an easy read by any, you know, you're not going to cuddle up at night, you know, when you go to, where you're going to, in Europe and, and read, but it's it's just, um, it's really inspiring. And and I hope that other people will follow in his, um, in his footsteps. Then the last question is always unfair, but it's perhaps profoundly unfair when your book was just published yesterday, but um, what are you working on now? Well, it's only profoundly unfair because I've missed so many deadlines getting this <laughs> to my publisher, but um, I am right now working on a, a slender history of Germany since 1945. It's going to appear in a series the Polity Press in the UK publishes. It's called Polity Histories. And it's meant for um, a, a you know general readership, lay audience, people who are in the airport, uh, want to pick up, I don't know if it'll be sold in the airport, one can only hope, but pick up a, a book and, and after a two and a half hour flight have, have learned um, the essentials about, uh, about the two Germanys since 45. I, um, yes, I, I'm behind on getting it into my publisher, but I, I've really loved doing this because I've been working on German history now for over three decades, um, especially the post-war period. And it's so nice to have the opportunity to kind of step back and and draw together um, connections that that you know I hadn't um, hadn't seen before, hadn't thought about systematically enough. So we've been talking with Andrew Port about his new book, Never Again: Germans and Genocide After the Holocaust. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I hope that you have a great time in Germany, and I hope we get a chance to talk again on the New Books Network. I hope so, too. And I hope uh, if we run into each other in a conference, I can tell you that uh, conspiracy story about Petra Kelly. Thank I you look so forward much. to it. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.